All right, well, we are week two of the adventure series. Nope, nobody's excited. Probably happy you weren't even here last week, so you don't even know what I'm talking about. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm already in trouble. Okay, well, the theme scripture for the adventure series uh, is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. You're noticing that I forgot to correct my typo from last week, who leads un in triumph. Yes, I forgot to correct that typo. I will have it corrected for next week. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Did you know that the church has a fragrance? Our triumph in Christ has a fragrance. Our hope in eternity, our prevailing joy, our generosity, our willingness to die to ourselves so that others might live, our charity, our wisdom, our kindness, our perseverance in trials, our transformation by the Holy Spirit, our freedom from sin, our authority over darkness, our covenantal blessings, all have a fragrance, a sweet fragrance, a spiritual fragrance. And it's not of our own doing, of our own making, as if it's ours like we can be, like we made it or we're responsible for it. No, the scripture says, and thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Who occasionally gives us a good day amongst the trials, tribulations, and trouble of this world. No. Come on, Aaron, help me out. Right. It's always leads us in triumph. Who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, that's through us. It's not what we made. It's what he made. But through us, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. See, we're trying to explain things to people that they haven't experienced yet. See, when they experience the gospel in your life, when they get a whiff of the fragrance of the gospel, they will ask you what that, that smell is. And then we have the privilege to explain it to them. If we're telling people what to do when they haven't asked, parents, come on, help me. Defense is up. When you're trying to explain something to somebody they haven't experienced, you got to tread through miles of intellectual filters. But when they get a whiff of the fragrance of his knowledge... I'm getting my preaching on this morning. You, you bless me this morning. Okay. They will ask. 
For anyone seeking the fragrance of the gospel can awaken the imprint of eternity God has set in the human heart, bypassing every barrier and every intellectual filter. We are being led on a fragrant adventure that begins at our front door. Not a backpacking trip twice a year, although those are fun. Not a once a year mission trip, although those are wonderful. Our adventure starts here at our front door. For some of us in our very living room, in our own, we have adventures in the home, not just outside the home. But the gospel, Jesus is, we are in a victory parade. So we're looking at the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts that cover how the early church, how God spread the fragrance of the gospel through the early church in Judea and Samaria, a region of about 50 square miles around Jerusalem, which is about the same size as the central coast from San Miguel to Santa Maria. We're talking a a roughly similar size area. So we can draw some parallels. This week, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, and Peter and John were on their way to church. They're on their way to the temple, and there was one of the fixtures of that community was a, uh, a lame man who has been paralyzed since birth. He'd been paralyzed for 40 years. He was at the gate beautiful, and he was, he was begging as he normally would, and Peter and John, they saw the line that they were that they were going to uh, being led up to. And instead of retreating Brack, they just stepped right over and said, gold and silver I don't have, but what I do have, we give to you, arise and walk. What happened? The fragrance of the gospel spread like wildfire in that city. Thousands of people believed. They asked, what is going on? This person who had been paralyzed since birth, is now walking around and giving credit to the, to the very man whom we crucified. What is this? The question mark was, was big. And Peter made these explanations, in the, an explanation in the city streets, and Scripture says that thousands, thousands believed. Thousands believed. Well... The council that was made up of the scribes, who are basically Bible scholars, the theologians, the seminary professors of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Pharisees were like, you know, the, the church, the religious leaders, the Sadducees were the, um, the, uh, some of the leaders that were a little more secular, that um, kind of uh, were the connection between the Roman Empire and the peoples uh, of that province. Um, But they were all the the smart folks gathered into a room because they were unhappy about this disturbance in the force. See, they thought they had put Jesus away and washed their hands of him. And when they realized that the disturbance of the force was still with them, not happy, So they arrested Peter and John, and they basically said, who gave you a permit to preach the gospel in the streets? 
I mean, they ask, on whose authority are you talking? But, you know, when, when Agape Church, when we go down and preach the gospel downtown, we have to get a permit from the downtown association to set up our band and play and, and things. And we're good citizens, and we do that. Um, but they basically came to Peter and John and said, we didn't issue you a permit to do this. Let's find out how Peter answered this question. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man and by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man stands here before you whole. He was standing with Peter and John. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they, the council, saw the boldness of Peter and John. Say boldness. Boldness. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. This really is the mic drop of the century. Peter and John weren't just telling a good story. Peter and John were living a good story in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter explains plainly in 112 words the eternal significance of this healing miracle. He says, the good you have seen done is by Christ alone. He has proven himself to be risen. The rejected stone has indeed become the chief cornerstone. And Peter uses, he's quoting Psalm 118.22, which King David had prophesied generations before about the coming Messiah. And Jesus had quoted that same passage of scripture to this same council of leaders weeks prior when they put him on trial. And when people of that culture, of the Jewish culture, they would say a phrase, oftentimes at the beginning of a passage of Scripture or a beginning of a chapter of Scripture, and what they were saying, they were really saying the whole chapter. And they, there was an expectation that the people they were talking to understood kind of the whole section of Scripture. You see, you know, um, even uh, an example of that, right, was uh, when, when Jesus on the cross said, it is... Uh, um, uh, God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He was, he was actually quoting a point from, is it it's Psalm 22. And so you say that's kind of hard to understand that little phrase, but if you go back and read all of Psalm 22, it brings this glory and majesty of what he was saying to light. Well, let me read you Psalm 118, this little passage, 19 to 24. This is what 
Peter was communicating or he was saying just by quoting that one little phrase. David prophesied, he said, open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go through them. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. When we sing, this is the day, this is... We're not just singing about this day. We're singing about this day. The day we live in. The day of salvation. We're singing about the age. This is the day. Peter is saying, the day that King David prophesied that you've been... You've memorized the psalm. Friends, leaders, educated ones, you know this psalm by heart. It's being fulfilled in your presence. It's happened. He's also saying, as there is no other name by which diseased bodies can be cured, so there is no other name by which sinful souls can be saved. And we, we are tempted to put Peter and John up on the apostle pedestal as if they had been trained from birth to be this great, these great men of God, as if they had a master's in divinity and courses on elocution and public speaking. Writers of the New Testament, we just keep building this pedestal up higher and higher and the Apostle John's up there and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. It is easy to forget who we're really talking about. Peter and John were raised fishermen. They had no formal education. They had never been at any university. They were not brought up at the feet of any rabbi. They had never been conversant in courts, camps, or colleges. On natural philosophy, mathematics, history, or politics, they would not be able to hold a conversation with the men of this council. They were considered ignorant, insignificant, private men with no public character or notable profession. They're just like you and me. I would argue most of us are probably more educated than who we've put on the pedestal. So we use that to disqualify ourselves. We'll, we'll leave the defense of Christianity to the professionals. Folks, we're as professional as we're going to get. We've been saved. And he's given us his Holy Spirit. Do you remember how cowardly Peter and John had been? 
before Jesus was crucified, before they knew what the stakes were, Peter had denied even knowing or being associated with Jesus three times out of embarrassment, right? You would not describe them, their personalities, as bold. Yet, now, the stakes are much higher. I mean, what they say in front of this council could mean they would be stoned right then. So when the stakes are much higher, now they spoke with clarity, knowledge, conviction of the Messiah and his kingdom. They were so fluent in the scriptures relating to the Messiah that the professional scholars and religious leaders could not find any hole in their arguments. Where did this boldness come from? Holy Spirit boldness in practice. Boldness is not a personality type. I'm a little more extroverted. You might be a little more introverted. You might be more extroverted than me. Boldness is not the ability to talk and talk and talk. It's not the, the, the fact that some of us get more recharged and refreshed around crowds of people and other of us get recharged, you know, sitting in a hammock and alone for eight hours. Not boldness. Boldness is not a volume level. It's not speaking loud. You can be very bold in a whisper. Boldness. The Greek word is paresia. Paresia. Really, you want me to spell it? P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A. It means to speak freely with candor and cheerful courage. The opposite of cowardice, timidity, or fearfulness. Parisia is a divine enablement that comes to ordinary and unprofessional people exhibiting spiritual power, clarity, and authority. This is what Paul described in, in 2 Timothy 1.7. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. We, let me say that again, uh, or, or say it in a different way. God has not given us a spirit that will make us timid or cowardly. He has given us His Holy Spirit, who will demonstrate God's dynamite power with perfect charity of intentions through us and illuminate our minds to understand the world around us and the work before us with the eternally truthful mind of Christ. Parisia is not a human quality, but a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Anyone, a whosoever, can be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we confess Jesus as the Son of God, as our Lord and our Savior, Scripture says we can receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will give you all the boldness that you need. Independent of your education, independent of your personality type, 
independent of how loud your voice is, independent of how well-spoken you are. Peter was not well-spoken, but in 112 words, he clearly, compassionately explained what they had saw, the scripture that was most important to them in that moment to a point where they could not put a hole in any of his argument. The council could not deny the cure of the lame man to be both a good deed and a miracle. He was there, walking, and ready to attest to the cure. They could not, with all their power and education, face down Peter and John. The gift of boldness, just as miraculous as the healing. Let me say that again. The gift of boldness is just as miraculous as the healing. Yet boldness, that moment, is not really where the story starts. The Holy Spirit only brings out of us what he has put into us. There is Holy Spirit boldness in preparation. Peter, the same guy who made this defense, he wrote a letter later. This, in our Bibles, it's the first letter of Peter, or Peter's first letter. He wrote it to the believers, the regular, good old-fashioned saints of God like you and I in this room in Asia. And it was about his own experience, and he was exhorting and encouraging them to follow his example as he had followed Christ. He said, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and always be ready or always be prepared to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. The preparation he was talking about, not a seminary degree. The preparation he was talking about? is not class upon class. The preparation he was talking about was a surrendered heart. Be ready. Are, is your heart ready to defend the gospel by which you have been saved? We are saved, right? Is your heart ready to make a defense of that gospel? Not in a planned speech, but is your heart willing? Are you willing? Defending the faith is not just for biblical scholars and pastors. It is the privilege and the duty of every Christian. Those that have been in communion with Christ, attending to his word, praying in his name, celebrating his atoning death and glorious resurrection, are, you are cooperating with the preparation of the Holy Spirit. This is what Peter and John were doing. They were cooperating with the preparation of the Holy Spirit. He said the adornments or um, the clothing that our defense should take on our meekness and fear. Meekness means humility and gentleness, not weakness. And in this case, fear means reverence for Christ and respect for others. Fear, like love, 
is translated, is the word used to translate a, a few different words in the Greek and the Hebrew. We, we, we read love a lot in scriptures, and sometimes they're referring to, or the scriptures are referring to agape, God's love, sometimes phileo, the love of friend, friendship, sometimes storge, the love of obligation or family, or, and sometimes eros, the romantic love between partners, between husband and wife. But it's all translated as love. Well, fear sometimes is translated as timidity and cowardliness, like in 1 Timothy. You have not been given a spirit of fear. But we are to adorn the preparation, the willingness of our heart with total respect for Christ, or I mean, total reverence for Christ and respect for others. Both of those uh, contexts or both of those meanings are translated as fear. So don't get hung up on the word fear. Like Peter, our defense can have no detectable self-promotion or self-preservation. I'd say for most of us, there's a lot that's in us. We have as many translations of the Bible as any generation in history in our own language. We have access to worship and teaching. You're all here this morning. I mean, you've been soaked and marinated in the presence of God and the word of God. There is a lot of preparation that has been put in you. Knowing our defense and being willing are two different things. Knowing our defense is good, but positioning ourselves when the stakes are high takes faith. I help coach my son's baseball team, and we hit in the batting cages a couple times a week. And hitting in the batting cage, he smokes line drives all the time, right? The batting cage, the plate, is the same distance from the pitcher's mound in the batting cage as it is in the game. The ball is the exact same ball. It's coming at the exact same speed, thereabouts. We're throwing at the same speed. But my son hits very differently in the game than he does in the batting cage. Just like you talk about your faith very differently here than you do at school or at work. It's very different in the game than it is in the batting cage. Sometimes my son will strike out eight or nine times in a row. On the same kind of pitching that he hits line drives in the batting cage, when the stakes are high, we feel different. When we get brought up to the line and we have to step out onto the water, we doubt our ability to walk. Peter, same guy. Matthew chapter 14, verses 28 to 31. Jesus invites him out onto the water. He takes the step. He's keeping his eye on Jesus. And as soon as he looks down 
and sees the stakes, he sinks. Positioning yourself requires a holy negligence of your own preservation. Positioning yourself requires a holy negligence of your own preservation. If Peter said the wrong things in front of the council, it would have cost him in his life. But he stepped out on the water. I remember when I first learned this lesson, I was, an, I was, a, I was a young believer going to Cal Poly. We were having, a friend of mine we, and I we were hosting a Bible study, a new Bible study, and uh, one, of the, uh, um, one of our neighbors heard that we were singing. It was probably late at night, you know, college. I was in, it was probably, we probably didn't even start the Bible study until 10 o'clock at night. So it was late. We were singing songs and uh, the neighbor comes over. She comes in and starts yelling at us. Stop that singing. Stop it. I can't believe you guys are doing this right now. And in in my heart, I, I knew in an instant, this is the operation of demonic influence. And I knew, I mean, I was a new Christian, but I knew that we walked in authority over darkness. I had read the scriptures. I knew that Jesus did. I knew the people in the early church did. I'd even seen people around Agape here cast and take authority over darkness. I knew it was true. I was prepared. But when the place, the line was drawn and I was being positioned to step out onto the water, I retreated. My ears got all hot, burning, and I'm, th- and I'm thinking, I know if I step out, you know, it's going to get weird, it's going to get crazy, like, I'm, I'm going to end, like, it's the unknown. I'm looking directly at my feet, and I'm looking at the water. My feet won't stand on that. So I backed away. Neighbor leaves, Bible study ends, every, spirit is totally of the place. I'm not talking the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of our gathering, totally broken, we dispel and leave. I went off by myself and I wept. You know, the ugly cry that it's like, I knew what I was supposed to do and I didn't do it. I was like, Lord, I'm not doing that anymore. If you bring me up to the line, I'm gonna step out. Two weeks later, we're hosting the same Bible study in a different room, but same, same area. Neighbor comes right over and starts in the same way. What are you doing? Yelling at us. And I said, okay, God. Stepped out on the water. I had no idea what I was going to say. I had not prepared any speech. I start walking towards her, and I could feel being filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. And I remember, even without being loud, I just said, stop in Jesus' name. And I just looked at her. And literally, the whole countenance in her eyes changed. She started to tear up, and then she just turned around and left, um, sobbing, left. We came back. We kept praising God. We finished our Bible study. The next day, I saw that neighbor. She had no recollection that that had even happened. I wonder how many of us can report negative testimonies after stepping out on the water. Nobody! 
But when we're up against the line, we pre-play the negative testimony and run. When we are being positioned by the Holy Spirit to pray for somebody in public, to encourage somebody in public, to defend our common faith, the name of Jesus, not in brashness, not in rudeness, not with a loud voice, but expecting the gift of boldness from the Holy Spirit to take all that he has put in us and orchestrate it into a nice 112-word or three-word, in my case, or whatever it is, that he will take our step of faith and fill us with boldness and fill us to release healing and fill us to release deliverance so that people can smell the fragrance of the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we're at a family gathering, extended family, 30 plus people. My nephew, one of my nephews, asked me, Jeff, I have a question. Uncle Jeff, I have a question for you. Are Jews going to heaven? All of a sudden, all of the boisterous conversations, right, in the house get really quiet and you can hear a pin drop. I know none of you have ever been asked such a loaded theological question such as that, of which we have no prepared remarks for, right? When we get brought up to the position, to the line, we don't have prepared remarks. We only have a prepared heart. So I know you're dying to say, how did, how did God show up in this miraculous moment, right? Yes. So immediately, I have no, I learned enough. I, you know, Pastor Jeff can't, can't save that situation. But any believer filled with the Holy Spirit can be bold. So I was like, I just surrendered my heart. I said, Lord, in my spirit, like just instantaneously, Lord, Holy Spirit, speak. So I stepped out and I opened my mouth. And this is what came out. What does the scripture say? And the reason why this question is so important is because I have my whole mom's side of the family, there's lots of cultural or there, there's a, we have a lot of Jewish heritage. And my nephew um, in high school is dating somebody who's from a Jewish family. And so like this, this was a relevant question. As I say, so what does the scripture say? Quiet, silence. My nephew looks at me. He's really thinking. He's not trying to argue with me. He really was looking for an answer to this. People have real questions, and they don't need your prepared remarks. They need the Lord Jesus. They need the Holy Spirit to make you bold. And he's looks and he looks at me and says, I, I don't know what the scriptures say. He said, well, is there a passage of scripture that says 
the Jews shall go to heaven, or is there a passage of scripture that says the Jews shall not go to heaven? He thinks about it. No, I, I'm not familiar with, with that verse. I don't, I don't know that verse. I said, well, that's good, because there isn't a verse in scripture that says that. But what does scripture say? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe it's a wrong premise. You do know John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come into this world to judge the world or to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There were lots of Jews in the early church that can, that were whosoevers. There will be lots of whosoevers from cultural Jews, from cultural Muslims, from cultural Hindus, from cultural people of every tribe, nation, tongue, design, shape, everything. There are lots of whoevers, whoevers. I say God did not come to save groups. You don't get into heaven by group membership. There's no group that is saved. It's whosoever. There are lots of Jews in heaven. But Jesus said himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He came to the Jews first. And we, we don't have to sit in our self-righteousness and judgment of the group of the Jews or any other group whosoever. And so I'm, I'm, I've probably added a little bit to what I said in, in the group, but you get the gist of that conversation. And I remember my, my nephew looked at me like his eyes get real glassy and he has no argument. And I didn't press him on it, but the Holy Spirit gave me the gift of boldness, not because I'm a pastor, not because I have a seminary degree. I, in fact, don't have a seminary degree. I am unqualified to be your pastor. Right? We are all qualified. We're qualified under the name and the lordship and the victory of Jesus, and we are, can receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And everything that the Holy Spirit leads you into, every truth that he leads you into through God's word, both living and written, that is printed on your hearts, he can orchestrate in a moment, give you the gift of boldness if you will just step over the line. It's hard. I'm telling you, when my nephew asks that question, my insides like want to throw up. That's human. But will you step over the line with me? I have a situation coming up tomorrow. I got advance notice of a line. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But I will, I've had to not consciously not prepare remarks. I need the gift of boldness from the Holy Spirit to, to, that he will keep my feet afloat. Positioning yourself requires a holy negligence of your own preservation. 
Positioning yourself requires a holy negligence of your own preservation. The council realized Peter and John had been with Jesus. The same miraculous healings the Pharisees ran up against in Jesus, they now saw in Peter and John. The same confounding wisdom the Pharisees ran up against in Jesus, they now saw in Peter and John. The same boldness the Pharisees ran up against in Jesus, they now saw in Peter and John. It was like the Pharisees still had Jesus on their hands. But wait, there's two of them. But wait, there's 200 of them in this room. This is the mission of the Holy Spirit, to glorify Jesus in us and through us for the world. Are you hungry? I mean, it is, there's probably no one in this room that's physically that hungry. So when I say, are you hungry for this, you are sitting in your well-fed contentedness, like me, trying to imagine what hunger feels like. Maybe that's why God invites us to fast once in a while. So that we will be in touch physically with the hunger of our spirit. Are you hungry? for this transformation? Are you hungry for the Holy Spirit? Stand with me and we're going to sing just the chorus of this song and we'll be, we'll be done in just a few minutes. This is a chorus of hunger and I encourage you with, I plead with you, get in touch with your spiritual hunger. Be hungry for the Holy Spirit to prepare you, to position you so that you can experience and allow others to experience the fragrance of the gospel. Let's sing.